Uh, my name is Rick Swing. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. My job is to make everybody else's job easier. That's my job. So I appreciate you being here today if you're new to Westwood. Uh, in your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and keep your thumb there, and then we're going to go to Matthew 26 here in a moment. Obviously, this is uh, Communion Sunday, or we will call it the Lord's Supper this morning. And many times, most, many of you all in here have partaken of the Lord's Supper at some point in time, whether it's here or at another church. I know the churches I grew up, remember the very front, there would be a, a counter, there would be an a, a area that the Lord's Supper would be on, and it would say, in remembrance of me. Remember those altars? Um, this morning, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. But before we take part of the Lord's Supper, God just pressed upon my heart that... Um, we need to talk about it first. And this is why. I think sometimes in our Christian life, we get into the routine of just kind of doing things. We check the boxes off. So we get up on a Sunday morning, what are we supposed to do? Go to church. We kind of check the box off. And when we don't have church like we did when the hurricane was coming through, it feels uncomfortable to us. I think sometimes in our Christian faith, we just check the boxes. Like, oh, I, I need to read my Bible today. I'll check that box. Or check the box, the offering's coming by, I need to tithe, or check that box. And what I want to do this morning is not check the box. I want us to have a clear understanding of why we do what we do when we take part of the Lord's Supper. Whenever you do this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So I want to make sure that there's kind of fundamentals. I'm just an old athlete, and I firmly believe that if you did the fundamentals well, it made the rest of what you did go easier. If we do the fundamentals of our faith well and do it consistently in our lives, it makes the rest of our faith life go easier. And the truth be told is, you know, we have a generation that is now attending church, a generation that we're trying to reach that, that sometimes don't go to church. And that generation, this millennial generation, sometimes we make fun of, but here's the truth. They're the ones who are going to be taking your seat one day. They're the ones who we've got to give this church over to. They're the ones that need to understand exactly what we do. So I think there's a responsibility that we have to make sure they understand. If they never grew up in church and they start coming and we say, we have an altar call, that they understand what an altar call means. Or if somebody mentions revival, that's not a foreign word. They understand what it means. Or if somebody says, we're going to tithe today. They understand what that tithe means. When we say we're going to take the Lord's Supper today, that they won't check off the box because everybody else goes and does it, but they'll understand what that means. We celebrate two, of, uh, two ordinances from the Scripture here at Westwood. The first is believer's baptism, and the other one is the Lord's Supper. And you may ask, so what is an ordinance, or, or how does something become an ordinance? Well, there are several distinguishing marks about making something an ordinance. One, it has to be, it has to be instituted by Christ. So as we talk about the Lord's Supper today, there ha it has, the Lord's Supper had to be instituted by Christ. We find that in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22, in these accounts by the disciples of that first Lord's Supper. Secondly, it's got to be taught by the apostles. And we find here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is teaching the church at Corinth the proper way to handle the Lord's 
Supper. And then thirdly, an ordinance needed to be practiced by the early church. And in Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 here, we see where the church is actively participating and practicing the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Let's talk about just briefly that first Lord's Supper and, and kind of the context in which we're going for today because when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, it's about a church that's been established for a little bit. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. So let me give you a little context about this first Lord's Supper. Here's Jesus, and he's gathering his disciples together because he knows, Jesus does, that just in a few short hours he's going to be arrested. And very shortly after that, that road to Golgotha where he hangs on a cross is going to take place. So in verse 17, it writes, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, where do, you want to, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? I want to stop there for just a moment. So what Jesus is doing is he's going to add at the end of the Passover meal this Lord's Supper. Now the Passover, if you remember, it's something that, that took place in the Old Testament. So if you've been in church for a while, you'll remember the story of the captivity of the, of the, of the Hebrew nation Israel under King Pharaoh of Egypt. They were enslaved under his under his command. And God grabs Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Of course, Moses, reluctantly at first, goes and does this. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, my God says that you need to let his people go. Because God had a plan for him. There was a promised land to go to. Well, Pharaoh said no. So God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him there's going to be some plagues that's coming if you don't let my people go. Pharaoh said no. So sure enough, plague one, plague two, plague three, plague four. He kept saying no to God. Finally, Moses comes to him on plague number 10. And Moses says, if you don't let God's people go, the firstborn son of every family in Egypt is going to die. Is going to die. Well, Pharaoh said, no. So what took place then is Moses gave instructions to the people of Israel. He said, I want you to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, I want you to slay that lamb. And then I want you to take the blood of that lamb, I want you to coat the doorpost of your house or the lintel. So that when the death angel comes, he will see that blood that was covering your doorpost and he will pass over and your firstborn son will live. So that's what they did. That was the Passover. And we know how the story goes. Firstborn son of everyone who didn't have that perished. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. They're commanded, the nation of Israel, says, Remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe Forever. In other words, from this point forward, this Lord's Supper is something that you need to observe because you need to remember what God has done for you. And you will pass that along from generation to generation to generation to generation. It's kind of like us when we have Thanksgiving meals and we gather around, at least my family, 
And we'll talk about stories because we have the whole family there. And we'll remember, we'll pass something down from generation to generation to generation. That was the purpose of this Passover meal. And here's an interesting thought. In my studies of doing this this morning, I came around, uh, across this. Do you realize that nowhere in the scripture are you commanded to remember Jesus' birthday? Now, we do a pretty good job of that ourselves, don't we? Yeah, we remember his birthday quite well. But we are commanded in the scriptures to remember his death. What that tells me is that his death, what took place about his death, was really, really important for all of mankind. So what does the Lord's Supper require of us? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hope you kept your thumb there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church. And in this particular part of the letter, Paul is identifying certain things that have come to his attention that they're doing wrong within the church. Now, I want you to remember in the context, it wasn't like this church, right? They didn't have a big building that they met in. There wasn't a cathedral. There wasn't a sanctuary like this. They were in little house churches. And so there was probably several of these house churches in the city of Corinth. And more than likely, all of them were doing this, taking the Lord's Supper the wrong way. So Paul wants to address these Christians who are meeting in these churches. And this is what he says in verse 17 of chapter 11. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. And we'll get to later on where he talks about a specific meeting in the Lord's Supper. Paul is saying, hey, listen, in these directives, you've done more harm than good. And I need to address that. Now, what we do here today isn't what was taking place back then, and thank the Lord. I mean, basically it became a party. They, 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 there was an irreverent about the Lord's Supper that was taking place among these churches, and Paul wanted to correct that. So what's required of us as Christians when it comes to the Lord's Supper? There's three things. Here's the first one. There needs to be, there has to be, there must be an examination of your heart. Two heart things we must examine this morning. The first is an examination of salvation. The second is an examination of sin. Look at verse 27 and 28. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy or irreverent manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone must, okay? This isn't a suggestion. It isn't just a thought. It's a command. Everyone must examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Greek for that word examine there is to test or prove that something is considered genuine or not. So back in those days, they would examine some gold to prove that it was genuine gold and not some other form. So you ladies, you've got diamonds on your finger, right? Now all the guys are going, okay, where's he going with this? You want to know that's real, right? That that's a genuine diamond from your husband because it reflects love along the way. We are to do the same thing in the examination of salvation. Is my faith genuine or not? The intent of the Lord's Supper was to take it with those who had a genuine faith in Christ. It doesn't make any sense at all for the unbeliever, the one who doesn't know Christ, 
to partake of the Lord's Supper because we do this in appreciation and remember of what he has done for me. If I don't have a relationship with him, it doesn't make much sense to partake of this supper. It becomes irreverent, unworthy, if you will. For some in this room today, the most important thing you can do is examine your heart and ask yourself the question, is there a genuine faith in my life? Romans 1.16 says this, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, before you were born, before you were thought of, Jesus had you on his mind when he went to the cross and died for you. Before you ever said yes to Jesus, Jesus, come in and make a difference in my life. Cleanse me of all my sin, and I put my trust and faith in you. Before that ever happened, it says that Christ died for you. There has to be an examination of salvation. Do I know Jesus or don't I? Here's the second thing. There has to be an examination of sin in one's life. See, part of the reason that Paul was writing this to this church in Corinth is that the idea behind the Lord's Supper was that the church would gather and there'd be sweet fellowship. It didn't matter whether you were rich or whether you were poor. Whether you were a different skin color or you came from a different country, the idea was when you stepped into that house church, everybody was the same. Because the one thing they all had in common was a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And they weren't doing that. They weren't doing that. There was this unworthy part of what they were doing, and that's what it says in verse 27. This irreverent manner, would, they were guilty of sinning. And I want us to know today, this isn't an examination of sin in your life where you feel so guilty, you feel so unworthy to come and take place, take part of this not what it's about because I've had people say that to me I, my life is such in wreck and ruin I'm in so much sin that I can't participate in the Lord's service now the Holy Spirit may tell you just you need to be still I get that but there isn't this condemnation of guilt of sin in your life that wasn't the purpose the purpose was that Jesus died for this sin that I have therefore I'm going to give it to him he paid the price for my sin I give it to him and there's victory behind that. Listen, none of us are worthy. Y'all hear me? None of us are worthy. We're only worthy because of the grace that Jesus showed us, that God showed us through his son when he shed his blood for our lives. That's the only reason. So when we have this examination of sin in our life, it's the idea that we're saying, okay, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I got junk in my life, but I want to be in right standing with you. So I confess this junk in my life. Because you paid the price for all of it. A couple of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, it says we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, every one of us sin. Every one of us. But it goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. 
and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, he forgives us. He forgets it. You don't have to hold on to it. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You're no longer under the law. By the way, when we take of the cup, it represents the blood of Jesus, this new covenant in Christ. The old law, the old covenant, the, the old Mosaic law, it's gone. It's been a, 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 abolished through the blood of Jesus. And we have this new covenant in Christ. It said grace. It's about grace. So there needs to be this examination of the heart. Is there salvation in my life? Have I committed him? And what is sin there that I can just turn over to him this morning? Here's the second thing that's required of us when we take the Lord's Supper. We're required to remember the cost. What did it cost Jesus when he went to the cross and he died for you and for me? Look in verse 23. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He's telling these Corinthians, hey, listen, you may not want to listen to me, but I'm telling you something that God said. God gave me this to tell you. He said, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took that bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Why? In remembrance of me. You cannot take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner and not remember what he's done for you and for me. He is saying, when they spit upon me, Rick, in your place, remember me. Jesus is saying, when they mocked me, Rick, in your place, I want you to remember me. He is saying, when they took the cat of nine tails, this whip that was embedded with rock and glass, and they tore my flesh and my muscle and my bone from my back. Rick, remember me. Jesus is saying when they placed a crown of thorns on his head that tore into his skin and embedded itself into his scalp, he says, hey, remember me. He is saying when they placed that cross on my back, and I had to carry it to Golgotha, and it ripped my open flesh in your place. Jesus says, hey, remember me. He is saying, when they took my clothes off and bore me naked in your place, remember me. He is saying, when they took those nails, and they drove them through my hands, and they drove them through my feet, and they nailed me to that cross, you remember me. Jesus is saying that when they placed that cross in its hole and it allowed me to suffocate because I had no strength left in your place, I did that. Remember me. He is saying that when he took his last breath and he shouted out, it is finished, and he died in your place, he says, Rick, remember 
And he is saying that when he rose from the tomb on that third day and all the angels in heaven shouted and redemption of all mankind had been fulfilled, he said, remember me. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a powerful verse says, for he made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Remember me, he says. Now there's no way that the disciples truly understood in that upper room that night exactly what was going to take place. I would only imagine that after Jesus rose from the dead and the next Lord's Supper that they took, that they truly understand the meaning of remembering him. And I would imagine that was a special Lord's Supper. But I also know in the scriptures it says that once they took the bread and they took the cup, In the Gospels, it says they sang. See, I'm a believer that if you remember correctly and you get before the Lord and you thank him and you praise him in worship, there's no way, there's no way you can't remember what he's done for you. Philippians 2, 9 9 through 11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge or every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They sang. Once they had taken communion, it says they sang. Before Jesus was to begin his walk to the cross, he worshiped. And in a moment, we're going to worship as well as we remember what Jesus did. It was Wednesday of this week. And it had been several weeks since I'd seen Henry. And Henry is a a part of our church. He doesn't have a small group because he didn't have enough strength to go to a small group and to a worship service on the same day. So he chose worship. Henry's been battling cancer for several years, brain cancer. Henry Turner and his wife Dawn, I've known for several years and I've had occasion to meet with Henry and have lunch and Henry's dying. I mean, he's on the verge of going to see Jesus. I mean, on the verge. So Wednesday, I went to their house over here and up on the ridge and walked into his bedroom and he was in that hospital bed and you could tell that the the cancer was ravaging his body. But there was a smile on Henry's face. He was happy to see me. I was happy to see him. And we had a conversation about dying. Henry, you ready? Yes, sir, I'm ready. And then we started talking about today. Henry says, I understand you're preaching. I said, yes, sir, I'm preaching. What are you preaching on? I said, the Lord's Supper. He looked me right in the eye and he says, I want to be there for the Lord's Supper. Well, we knew he couldn't, but that was a desire of his heart. 
I want to be there for the Lord's Supper. I want to take that bread, and I want to take that cup, he said, because it means something to me. In fact, he said it means even more today than it did years ago. Well, I prayed with Henry and got my car, and I said, you know what? I'm coming back tomorrow. We're going to do Lord's Supper. I called up Don. I said, Don, as soon as I make a hospital visit, I'm going to come by, and I'm bringing the Lord's Supper with me, and we're going to take it. And she told Henry, and Henry couldn't wait. So on Thursday, I walked into that room. Henry, they'd washed his hair. They got him ready. Had a new T-shirt on. He was sitting up in his bed. And he looked at me with that grin on his face. He says, man, I'm ready for this Lord's Supper. See, Henry, he doesn't have too many tomorrows left. You and I don't have too many tomorrows left, to be honest with you. So when we get the opportunity to worship our Lord and Savior for what he's done for us, you do that. Henry is going to be in a better place here soon. And I'll do his funeral. And I imagine at that graveside, we're going to take communion. We'll take communion at that graveside. We give praise. And we give thanks. For us today, it's very simple. The Lord's Supper, what does it mean to you? You have Jesus in your life? Any unconfessed sin? Are you remembered or remember the cost that it took for us to have this grace?